Good morning, church family. So if you would, please pull out your Bibles to Mark 12. That's Mark 12, verses 13 through 44. And they said to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living, you are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 
And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. As he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I have been surrounded by public education my entire life. My dad taught high school math for 34 years. My mother, middle school language arts. My grandmother was an elementary school teacher. My sister married a middle school social studies teacher. I married a high school English teacher who is herself the daughter of two public school educators and the sister of two public educators. All four of my children are in the Nixa Public School District, and I am the product of public education. I believe in public education. Before anyone gets upset at me, let me be clear. I've seen homeschooling done with excellence. I've seen Christian private schools done with excellence. I'm for any type of education that teaches kids to think deeply, to reason logically, and to communicate effectively. But I'm speaking of public education this morning because that's what I know. And one of the greatest challenges that a public educator faces is the challenge of classroom management. Students will not learn from an instructor they neither respect nor like. Therefore, one of the first tasks of a teacher at the start of a school year is to establish both their authority and their rapport with their students. A teacher has to find a way to establish the rules, the expectations, and the discipline of the classroom while simultaneously making the students feel that he or she is genuinely caring for them as individuals so that the student and the teacher view themselves as partners in the student's academic success and not as adversaries. And the first few weeks are crucial in this regard. A teacher has to earn the respect and the favor of the class or else it will turn on him or it will turn on her. And once a classroom turns hostile, it is very, very difficult to get it back. Now, my background in public education is likely the reason why I interpreted this morning's text in the way that I did. The three interactions that Mark records for us in Mark chapter 12 take place in the temple precincts, the classroom, between Jesus, the teacher, and certain Jews, the students. And as we will notice, the tone of the classroom has turned hostile. 
There are influential members of the class who have turned against Jesus and they are determined to undermine his authority, to discredit him in the eyes of the rest of the class and ultimately to destroy him. But Jesus is not a first-year teacher. He's not a novice. He is in absolute control over his classroom and he deals deftly and authoritatively with each disruption, silencing the troublemakers while simultaneously instructing his true disciples. Now, before we begin, and we're going to be covering this text over the course of the next two weeks, I need to tell you something about the three groups which are represented in these three encounters. In verses 13 to 17, Jesus spars with the Pharisees over the issue of taxes. In verses 18 to 27, he spars with the Sadducees over the issue of resurrection. And in verses 28 to 34, he deals with a question from one of the scribes. So who are these three groups and what do they have against Jesus? We'll start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a Jewish sect which likely emerged out of a group in the second century known as the Hasidim. Now, Hasidim is a Hebrew word which means the pious ones, which tells you a little something about the focus of their lives. They were focused on being pious and being holy as they interpreted it with regard to the law and the traditions. The Pharisees resisted what they saw as the cultural, moral, and theological compromise which had resulted from the Greco-Roman influence on Israel. And their aim was to reform Judaism and to bring it back to covenant faithfulness, back to the Torah, as they interpreted it. In Hebrew, the word Pharisee, the word parush, means separated one or holy one, which reflects their utmost concern for ritual and ceremonial purity. They were absolutely concerned with whether or not one was ceremonially pure or one was ceremonially defiled. They placed supreme value upon the Torah, which was the written law of Moses, but they also understood that the Torah needed to be interpreted and applied to new and ever-changing circumstances that faced Israel. And so, in addition to the Torah, the Pharisees had accumulated massive amounts of rabbinic interpretation and tradition known as the halakha, the tradition of the elders, that interpreted and applied the Torah and which the Pharisees held to be as of equal authority to the Torah itself. So they had two sources of authority, the Old Testament and the rabbinical interpretation and application of the Old Testament. Well, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had become the dominant religious force in Israel, and they remained so for centuries after. The Pharisees and the scribes were universally acknowledged as the experts in the interpretation and application of the Scripture. And if the temple and its sacrifices were the domain and the realm of the priests and the Sadducees, The realm and the domain of the scribes and the Pharisees were the scriptures and the synagogues. The second group that we're going to run into are the Sadducees, which is a Hebrew word meaning the just ones or the righteous ones. And the Sadducees were the lords of the temple. Though not all of them were priests, many of them were. 
The Sadducees, like the Pharisees, arose in the second century BC in the aftermath of the Maccabean Revolt, and they were comprised of the Jerusalem aristocracy. Okay? They were wealthy, they were politically connected, and they were in close collaboration with their Roman overlords. They were also more open to the Hellenizing influence of the Greco-Roman culture than were the Pharisees. Unlike the Pharisees, who accepted the authority not only of the books of Moses, okay, the law, but also the rest, of the, New, or the rest of the Old Testament, the writings and the prophets, in addition to the tradition of the elders, the Sadducees held that only the first five books of the Bible, only the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were holy scripture and were authoritative over doctrine and practice. Consequently, then, the Pharisees had vastly different beliefs Then did the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty, divine providence. The Sadducees had enshrined human free will. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees denied their existence. The Pharisees affirmed a coming resurrection of the dead and an afterlife, including both eternal reward and eternal punishment. The Sadducees denied a resurrection and denied an afterlife. And while the Sadducees were politically and economically powerful, controlling the temple and the priesthood, the general populace of Israel were aligned with the Pharisees theologically. Then there's the third group, and that's the scribes, the official experts in the Torah. They were highly educated and were entrusted with interpreting, teaching, applying, and judging according to the law. In an age when most people could not read or write, the scribes were held in very high esteem. James Edwards writes, First seats in the synagogues were reserved for scribes, and people rose to their feet whenever they entered a room. Many scribes were Pharisees, though not all of them, and the scribes and the Pharisees are not one and the same group. They're distinct one from the rest, even though there's significant overlap. The reason why all of this is important is because representatives of these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, comprised what is known as the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Jerusalem. The high priest presided over this body, which had 71 members. They had the 70 elders of Israel, comprised of the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, plus the high priest equals 71. Under Rome's authority, the Sanhedrin was the authority in all matters of political, judicial, and religious life. And as the next few chapters in the Gospel of Mark will make plain, it is the Sanhedrin as a whole, and all three of these groups in particular, which had aligned themselves in moral opposition to Jesus and schemed together for his death. Mark 12, verses 13 to 34, contains three passages in which 
three groups engage Jesus in the temple. They ask him questions in order to try to trap him in some blasphemy or to discredit him in the eyes of the people. And in each instance, we'll see Jesus deftly respond with wisdom and with authority, accomplishing two goals simultaneously. On the one hand, silencing his opponents and sending them away. And on the other hand, instructing his disciples as to how they can faithfully follow him in this world. And how we respond to Jesus' teaching will determine in which group we fall. So, the question of the morning and of next Sunday morning is, are you an opponent of Christ? The effect of Mark chapter 12 will be to silence you and to send you away. On the other hand, if you are a disciple of Christ, the effect of Mark chapter 12 will be to instruct you into how you may follow him faithfully unto salvation. Let's look at the first interaction as it is recorded in verses 13 through 17. It occurs in the temple between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Mark tells us some of the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were supporters of Herod the Great and of his dynasty, and they always occur in the New Testament in connection with the Pharisees, which is kind of curious because they make for rather strange bedfellows. The Pharisees resisted with all of the fibers of their being, the Hellenistic influence, the Greek influence on Hebrew culture, while the Herodians were about as Greek as you could be without actually being Greek. Nevertheless, They met in the middle when it came to their opposition to Jesus. At any rate, the Herodians were not major players in the gospel story, so we're not going to spend any time on them. Let's look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The last attempt to trap Jesus had not gone so well. We uh, studied that last week in verses 27 to 33 of chapter 11. But this time, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they think that they found an airtight net in which to ensnare Jesus. Their plan is brilliant, or so they think. They're going to try to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma with each group representing two opposing views. All right? The dilemma focuses upon the radically unpopular issue of Roman taxation. The tax in question is the Roman poll tax, which was instituted in the year 6 AD. And in this tax, according to Kent Hughes, every adult male and female had to pay just for the privilege of existing. And it could only be paid 
with a Roman coin, a Roman denarius. Now, the denarius was a silver coin that was roughly equivalent to a day's wage in Palestine. On one side, it bore the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar at this current time. He reigned from 14 to 37 AD. And the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was the image of Tiberius's mother with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So the dilemma works like this. If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees are going to turn around and they're going to herald to the nation of Israel that Jesus is a Roman loyalist. He's a national traitor. But if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians are going to run to their Roman buddies, the Roman officials, who do not take kindly to insurrectionists who incite Israel to rebellion. So it's a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy, and he deftly evades their snare. He calls out their scheme. He knows what they're doing. He says to them, why put me to the test? And he asks for a denarius. And when they bring him one, he holds it up in the, in the sight of them all, and he shows the image of Tiberius Caesar. And he asks the question, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they reluctantly mumble, Caesar's. Right? Well, then comes the hammer as Jesus smashes his way through their defenses. He says, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, the brilliance of this reply lies in that it was commonly accepted in the ancient world that the coins were the property of the ruler who had minted them and whose image they bore. Therefore, If the Jews were going to utilize Caesar's coins, Caesar had a right to exact tribute from them. No one would have denied Caesar's right to require what legally belonged to him. But then Jesus goes on. And the use of the word image, he says, whose image, Greek word is icon, whose image and inscription is this, calls to mind another use of that word in Genesis 1.27, where the Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In other words, Jesus' reply works like this. The denarius was made in Caesar's image, and therefore it belongs to Caesar. But you were made in God's image, and therefore you belong to God. So you ought to render to Caesar your rightful taxes, and you ought to render to God your hearts and your lives. Speechless, then, the Pharisees and the Herodians simply marveled and went away. Well, that was the test. Now comes the teaching. What can we learn from Jesus' reply that will help us to follow him faithfully as his disciples. Well, in one single statement, Jesus establishes both the legitimacy of the state 
and its essential separation from the church. Now, these are important matters to think through because they intersect with our own discipleship and our own following of Jesus every single day. So let's take these truths one at a time and see what we can, we can glean from Jesus' statement that we are to render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's establishes the legitimacy of the state. Implicit in Jesus' statement is an affirmation that Rome exists and that it has the right to tax its citizens. Human government is instituted by God and it serves two vital functions in this fallen world. Number one, it provides order where otherwise there would be only chaos. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I'm way ahead of you. There's nothing orderly about our federal government. And here in Missouri, we would be forced to admit there's very little orderly about our state government at the moment. All right. But hold on just a second. I want to submit to you that traveling abroad will quickly disabuse you of the notion that better governments exist elsewhere. They don't, at least not in very many places. Besides, a poorly ordered government is better than no government and no order. Without government, even an imperfect one, society would descend into anarchy and death. See, governments do things for the benefit of the society which an individual citizen cannot do by himself. For instance, governments build infrastructure. They build roads, rails, bridges, and everything else which is necessary for the economic development and prosperity of its citizens. Governments provide for the common defense, like the armed forces. Governments combat public health crises like viruses, diseases, and epidemics. Governments regulate industry in order to keep the economic playing field level. Governments conserve and protect the environment, including the creation of national parks and wildlife preserves. And they perform many other functions which are necessary to a well-ordered and prosperous society. If you would like to feel grateful for the United States government, I would invite you to come and take a five-hour truck ride through Haiti with me. You will never again grumble about having to pay transportation taxes or grumble about environmental regulations. So a government provides order where otherwise there would be chaos. The second function that a government serves is that it enforces the rule of law where otherwise there would only be the rule of power. In a fallen world, individuals cannot police themselves. A society must have laws, and those laws must be enforced by the state and not the individual. Now, most people, although we are fallen, by virtue of our creation in God's image, we still have a sufficiently active conscience such that we don't kill and we don't steal. 
but some don't. They have so seared their conscience through sin that they are willing to take another person's life or another person's property if it is to their benefit, if it serves their self-interest. That's why we need a government to establish laws and to enforce those laws. And that's the function that Paul points to in Romans chapter 13. Let me read you some verses from Romans 13. Paul, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to Christians living under the authority of Rome, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are the ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. In a society without laws or law enforcement, people would behave like animals and it would be the survival of the fittest. Might would determine right. The powerful would oppress the weak. The rich would oppress the poor. The majority would oppress the minority. So thank God for government. Now, is there such a thing as a perfect human government? No. All human government is flawed. All human government is corrupted by sin. But even a flawed government is better than no government. And even a flawed government deserves our allegiance. Let me ask you some questions. Was it a perfect government to which Jesus instructed the Jews to pay taxes? No. Was it a perfect government to which Paul commanded allegiance in Romans 13? No. Was it an honorable king whom Paul commanded the Roman church to honor? No. Is it possible for a government to overreach its God-given authority? Yes. And we will deal with that momentarily. But for now, I just want to point out that the allegiance to which Jesus calls us is pretty far-reaching. And I think this is a needed corrective to disgruntled American Christians. So I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you rendering unto Caesar the things which belong to Caesar? Taxes? Respect? Honor? Participation? Do you vote? Prayer? 
Jesus affirms a second truth with this statement. Not only does he affirm the legitimacy of the state, but he affirms the essential separation of the state and the church. While Jesus' words affirm the legitimacy of the state's authority under God, okay, I would point you to John 19.11 in Jesus' words to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. The converse of that statement is not true, namely that the church exercises its authority under the state. That's not true. God claims all authority over human government. Daniel 4.32, the most high rules over the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will. And he gives zero authority to the state to bind the conscience of men when it comes to issues of religious adherence. Zero. Render to God the things that are God's reveals that there is a separation between those things which belong to the state under God and those things which belong to God apart from the state. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth and it ought not be under the authority of the state in which it is located. Just as the United States Embassy in Beijing does not belong to China, it is sovereign soil of the United States of America. Even so, the church is sovereign soil of the king. And the United States government has zero jurisdiction here. The state is God's institution, and its ministers are God's ministers, Romans 13, 6. But the church is God's kingdom, and the state has no authority here. So let's tease out some implications of that truth, which I think we would do well to remember. I want you to listen to me closely because this may run against the grain of some of the things that you thought, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. I have four implications of this truth. Number one, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. There are Christian churches. There are Christian families. There are even, yes, Christian politicians and Christian civil servants. But there is no such thing as a Christian government, and there will not be until Christ returns to reign. Implication number two. The power of the state should never be used to compel or restrict belief. Now this cuts both ways. The power of the state should never be used to compel belief in one particular religion, even if that religion is the one true faith of Christ. Saving faith cannot be coerced or compelled. And as soon as that is attempted, Christianity is lost. You see, Christianity, new covenant faith, must exist in a pluralistic society in order to thrive because Christianity grows by virtue of its distinctiveness from the world in which it exists. On the other hand, the power of the state should never be used to restrict belief in one particular religion, unless that religion violates the rule of law. 
For instance, if a religion advocates for child sacrifice, it's incumbent upon the state to restrict that. But otherwise, it should not restrict or compel belief in any way. If we want true Christianity to thrive in the United States, then we better advocate for religious liberty for all faiths, even the false ones. Implication number three. The state should have no part of church governance or doctrine. The state has no business telling churches how they should be ordered, who their ministers should be, or what they should believe and teach. The unholy union between the church and the state will always, always, always lead to the weakening of the church's faith and practice. And I would just give you as a preeminent example the Church of England. Implication number four, the church should not overly align itself with one particular state. The gathered church on earth is to be a reflection of the gathered church in heaven in which there are representatives from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Listen to me very closely. A German believer, a Palestinian believer, a Chinese believer should feel at home in our church because in a very real sense, this is home soil for them. This is the kingdom of God on earth. They should feel the same way when they step into our church as we may feel stepping into the United States Embassy abroad. This means that anything that blurs this truth is out of place in the midst of the gathered church. No church, for instance, should recite the Pledge of Allegiance in its worship service. Why? Because what if there are Chinese brothers who happen to come into our worship service, can they pledge allegiance to the American flag? No, they cannot, and no, they should not. In fact, nothing should transpire in a worship service of which a believer from any nation could not be a part, or else that element is not Christian, it's American. There's a reason why we don't do patriotic services here. Because they're wrong. This is a Christian church. This is not an American church. And we must We must, we must maintain the essential separation of the church and the state or else we will lose our distinctiveness in this world. Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So if you would be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, you must do both. The second interaction is recorded in verses 18 to 27, and it also occurs in the temple precincts, this time between Jesus and the Sadducees on the subject of resurrection. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. 
And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, let me pause here because there's some of you who are thinking, this is weird. And you're right. (laughs) It's strange if you've never read the Old Testament before. It's strange if you have read the Old Testament before. What the Sadducees are talking about is the practice of leveret marriage, which is first mentioned in Scripture in the case of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38.8, and it is prescribed in the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25.5-6, which reads like this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if the surviving brother is already married? How would his first wife feel about that? Well, I admit that it is a strange and foreign custom, and I affirm that we should not do this today under the new covenant. This was a particular law for a particular time and a particular people. So if you struggle with this concept, however, let me give you, and it's justice, it's rightness, let me give you some points to remember very quickly, parenthetically. Number one, this situation in which a man dies and leaves his wife to a childless widow would not exist apart from the fall of man. Death entered the world through sin, and therefore this situation was not originally a part of God's good design for marriage. In other words, it's similar to the divorce allowance in Deuteronomy 24. Number two, not every culture has viewed the sexual union within marriage to be as sacred as we do. Some cultures place another thing in the highest place of authority, even above sexual monogamy. And that higher priority is family lineage and bloodline. Uh, This is what caused Sarah, for instance, to give her handmaiden to Hagar uh, in order to bear children by her. For Sarah, it was a higher priority to extend Abraham's bloodline and his family lineage than it was to keep Abraham monogamous. Furthermore, she didn't believe God's promise. So I'm not saying it's right. It's not. I'm just suggesting that it was a different cultural view of the role of sex within marriage. Number three, you need to remember that the law of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25 has special reference to the issue of the inheritance of the covenant land. God and his people were very concerned that each family's inheritance stay within that family, and leveret marriage was designed to keep the dead brother's family lineage and therefore his inheritance alive. Right? At any rate, it's this practice of leveret marriage to which the Sadducees refer in this hypothetical story that they tell Jesus. Now, Mark informs us right off the bat that the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. 
And this is related to the fact that they don't affirm the writings or the prophets as authoritative scripture, but only the law. And really explicit references to the resurrection are are found in places like Isaiah and Daniel and Job and the Psalms, but not in the first five books of Moses. But by Jesus' day, the majority of Jews believed in a resurrection. And the prevailing view of the resurrection and the eternal state was that it was pretty much a continuation of the present state, including marriage, albeit under ideal and glorious conditions. Therefore, the Sadducees, knowing that Jesus affirmed the resurrection, he affirmed it in places like John 5, They present their question in an effort to discredit him by showing that the idea of resurrection is absurd. So they think. How could the resurrection be true when in the case of leveret marriage, which is in the law of Moses, and also, by the way, in the case of the remarriage of widows, multiple men would have the right to claim this woman as wife in the resurrection? To their minds, they've got Jesus and all the others who believe in resurrection trapped in an absurdity. Well, once again, Jesus deftly escapes their snare by refusing to be cornered by false premises. Their question is absurd, not because the resurrection is untrue, but because they do not understand the nature of the eternal state. So verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are quite wrong. Well, the premises of their question were faulty. The resurrection state, the eternal state, does not continue in an unbroken continuity with the present state. It is radically, qualitatively different and better. And furthermore, Jesus didn't even have to step outside of the law of Moses, did he? In order to prove the resurrection. This was clear from the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and verse 6. Once again, Jesus' opponents were silenced and his disciples were instructed. So as we conclude this morning, I want to ask the question, what can we learn from Jesus' response to the Sadducees that will help us to follow Jesus faithfully in this world, in this age? Okay, three truths. Truth number one, there is a resurrection of the dead. Jesus says when they rise from the dead, not if they rise from the dead, verse 25. Jesus spoke most clearly to the reality of resurrection in John chapter 5 and verse 28. Do not marvel at this, he said. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. 
In other words, this present age will not continue forever. There is coming a day when Christ will return in power and glory, and he will command the dead, all of them, to rise. And all who are in the tombs will come forth to judgment. Those who have done good will rise to eternal life, while those who have done evil will rise to eternal judgment. So, if we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to live in light of this truth, and we need to prepare ourselves for that coming day by obeying the Son of God. And his first and greatest commandment is that you should repent and believe in him who died to take away your evil deeds and to give you his righteousness and who rose again in order to give you new and everlasting life. So you will be raised. And the difference between whether or not you will be raised to everlasting judgment and death or raised to everlasting salvation in life is whether or not you repent of your sins, turn to Jesus Christ in faith, receive from him his very own righteousness, see him remove the guilt and the iniquity of your sins and and pay the penalty for those sins at the cross and whether you receive his Holy Spirit and follow him by faith. So which group are you in? Are you among those who will be raised to everlasting judgment and death? Or are you among those who will be raised to everlasting salvation and life? Or, to ask it another way, have you repented and trusted in Christ and received from him a righteousness that is by faith, that is not your own, the only righteousness which will pass through the judgment? Truth number two. The dead are still alive. Even before that coming day of resurrection, the dead are still living. Their souls being either in a conscious state of torment, like the rich man in Luke 16, or in a conscious state of blessing, like Lazarus in Luke 16. This is the thrust of Jesus' citing of Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, evidently, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for centuries, were still alive. And Jesus affirms, or rather God affirms to Moses and Jesus affirms to the Sadducees that God is still their God and they are still his people because they live before him. Every person who has ever lived still lives in one place, heaven, or the other, hell, as they await the day of resurrection and judgment. One more truth that you need to know. The eternal state of the faithful is different and infinitely better than the present state. Jesus' response to the Sadducees is that they don't know the scriptures regarding the reality of the resurrection, nor do they understand the power of God regarding the nature of the resurrection. 
Every good thing in this present life, marriage included, is but a foreshadowing of the infinitely better blessings to come. Things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has ever entered into the heart of man, all that God has in store for them that love him. And marriage is a good example of the qualitative difference between the present state and the resurrection state. Most of us cannot imagine a good life apart from marriage. Why? Because so many blessings of God come to us through the marriage relationship in this life. Friendship, intimacy, pleasure, children, family. All of those blessings of God come to us through marriage, such that we cannot imagine how life could be good in heaven without marriage. But you know what Jesus would say? You don't understand the power of God. God's power is not limited by what we can imagine. We were created for everlasting, ever-increasing joy, and God knows how to fulfill the longing for that for which we were created. Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The question is, do you trust God in that promise? When you are in God's presence, when you are at his right hand, you will not miss any earthly pleasure. You're not going to miss sex. You're not going to miss family dinners. You're not going to miss movie nights with your kids. You're not going to miss family vacations. You're not going to spend a moment in eternity longing for something that you had in this age because every holy pleasure that you enjoy in this age is but a foretaste of the infinite pleasure and joy that is yours if you love God and trust Christ. Now, I don't want to speculate about what the eternal state will be like because Jesus doesn't say. He simply says it's different and better than our present state. See, marriage and the family stand at the the center of human society in this present age, but not in the age to come. In the age to come, the relationship between Christ and his bride and the family formed by that covenant union will be the center of civilization. And every holy pleasure that you have known in this life is but a foretaste of what will be experienced a thousandfold throughout endless generations through that eternal covenant union. So if this passage makes you sad, used to make me sad. Why? Because I love my wife and I love being married. But if this passage makes you sad as you contemplate an eternity without marriage, then you need to remember that you don't understand the power of God. So trust him. Trust him to provide for you perfectly that which you were created for everlasting and ever-increasing joy in him.